I'd invite you to uh, get your Bibles and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Covering a, a larger section here this morning, focusing on, on the Lord's Supper from article number 7 of our Statement of Faith. And so I'll be reading, our text is uh, chapter 11, verse 17 through verse 32. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so we may not be condemned along with the world. That's the word of the Lord, and let us pray. Our Father, now as we turn our attention toward your word, we admit our great need for help. Lord, we pray that your spirit would come, enlighten our minds and our hearts. Help us, Father, to hear these words and that your word may do your work in our church and in our lives personally. And Father, we are so grateful that we are not alone gathering together here this morning. There are many believers throughout this county, throughout the state, throughout the world who have gathered or who are gathering or who will gather soon to hear your word and to worship you. Lord, we think of our brothers and sisters in the Peace Evangelical Church just outside of Norfolk and Pastor Clark and Sheila. And we ask, Father, that you would bless this congregation, help Clark this morning as he preaches your word, help this, this congregation to listen and to honor and worship you because of your incredible grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. May they be formed by your word as we are as well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin this morning by doing a little thought experiment. Um, I want you to imagine something with me. Let's imagine that a month goes by 
and we as a church don't celebrate communion. And then another month goes by, and again, the Lord's Supper doesn't, doesn't happen in any of our worship services. Nothing is announced about it from the pulpit. There's no explanation in the bulletin. In fact, we don't really say anything about it. We, we, just, we just don't do it. But, but everything else that we do in our worship services just continues as normal. We meet every week to sing our praises and our thanksgivings to God. We pray together as a congregation. You, you hear about different opportunities for ministry and missions from the pulpit here, and, and your pastor preaches a gospel message from God's word every week, but we just never get around to doing communion. How long would it take before you noticed? Would you miss it? What impact would it make toward your faith or to our, our life together as a church? Now let's just imagine a, a different scenario. Let's imagine that instead of no longer practicing the Lord's Supper, that we as a church just all of a sudden stop singing together. Again, no announcements made. Everything else happens like it always does, but there is no longer any singing in our services. How quickly would you notice that change? What impact would that change make towards your life or to our life together as a church? How much would we miss singing? Now, I know maybe some of you are, are kind of arguing with me from your mind, just saying, Pastor, come on. You know, you can, we can't really compare the two. After all, we sing every Sunday, and we only have a communion service once a month, so obviously we would all notice it, just, just you know, notice that we're not singing no longer, much faster and much quicker than we would notice the absence of communion. But, but my guess is that there would be a far stronger and more vocal opposition if we remove singing than if we decided to no longer do a communion service. I mean, after all, just look at our, our sanctuary. Just look around. We, we, we have all these reminders that one of the major worship practices that we participate in is singing. We have a keyboard up here on, 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 the, on the platform. We have all these microphones with their multi-colored foam covers. We, we, we have these three projectors you know, on, on our our ceiling. We, you may even be able to find a hymnal under the chair somewhere in our sanctuary if, if you look very closely to try to find those hymnals. They're, they're there. But if this were every, any, any other Sunday except today, you know, when we were actually celebrating communion like we are, what do we have in this room that will communicate that the Lord's table is an important part of our worship? Is there anything that would remind us of the importance of the Lord's table if we just forgot to do it for a couple of months? How important is it then to our faith and our life as a church? Well, in our statement of faith on the church, for the free church, we have a statement about the two ordinances that the Lord Jesus commanded that all true churches practice, that that is Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is also known as communion. And our statement reads like this in Article 7 regarding these two ordinances. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances 
Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel, though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. So today's sermon, and Lord willing, the next two, will be focused on Article 7, um, on the church in our statement of faith. Next week, we're going to hear God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on just what the church is. And then in two weeks, I plan to have a sermon focused on, on the other ordinance, on baptism. But today, we're going to hopefully learn more about this great importance and significance of the Lord's Supper and why it is vitally important to our faith, to the faith of every believer, and that it shouldn't be neglected. So our main theme for this text from Romans, I'm sorry, for 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper is the gift from the Lord to strengthen our faith as well as our fellowship in the gospel. Now this is a long passage as, as we just read, three paragraphs, and so we don't have time to focus on every detail of it, um, but it is the primary text for learning about the Lord's Supper. So we're just gonna take it paragraph by, by paragraph, kind of get the main theme about the Lord's Supper from each paragraph. The first is paragraph uh, 1, verses 17 through 22. Christ has given us the Lord's Supper to help us to feel like a family and also to live as one. To feel like a family and also to live as one. Verse 17, but in the following instructions I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that, that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, if you are familiar with the letter of 1 Corinthians, then you are aware that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter in order to help to correct some of the errors of the Corinthian church. They were, uh, there, were, there were some things going on within this young body of new believers that, that just weren't right. And what we must know about this letter is that the Apostle Paul, in writing this, speaks for Christ. What Paul wrote to the church is what the Lord Jesus Christ would have written to the church. It is the word of the Lord. And in this section in chapter 11, Christ is addressing the unfaithfulness of the church body in how they were practicing the Lord's Supper. The gospel calls believers to love one another as Christ loved the church, and they were failing miserably in that. Their practices of the Lord's Supper were a clear sign of this. So Paul's conclusion when hearing about their behavior towards one another in the church, is to declare when you come together, that means when you gather together as a church, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. What a terrible judgment upon this church. Paul's essentially telling them, if this is how you act when you come together as a church, it would be actually better if you had just have stayed home and not gathered. And it seems that those who were wealthier in this church were separating themselves from those who struggled to pay their bills. Those who had wealth and a higher education were grouping up with each other and they were intentionally leaving out those 
whom they consider to be of a lower social status. It seems their practices were to, to come together for a meal as part of their gathering, but the wealthy would reserve all of the good food for themselves and not allow the people of the lower class to eat along with them. And they were enjoying themselves so much that they were even getting drunk on the wine at these gatherings. Now imagine how that might look in one of our own fellowship meals. You know, we, we usually have, have them at least once per month almost. We have, we have here as a church, you know, rather than bringing our food dishes and, and putting them all together, you know, on, the, on, on that common table and allowing everyone to help themselves. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, all, we all sit together in, in, in the one big room downstairs, you know, like we do. Well, instead, we separated ourselves into different rooms in the church building and only brought food to share with the people that we invited into those rooms with us. And now, let's imagine that, that, that some of us weren't able to bring any food to share. And rather than the church generously allowing them to share in the eating of the food, we had a strict rule that stated only those who actually brought food can eat. How divisive and humiliating would that be? Obviously, the only people that would, that would be there and stick around were those who were able to afford to bring food together. Well, something similar was going on here in the Corinthian church, and therefore Paul makes that statement in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Paul's saying something about the Lord's Supper here. As Paul reveals in, 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 the, in the next paragraph, the Lord's Supper is a way for the church to demonstrate in a visible and tangible way the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins. Through Christ's death on the cross, God has reconciled all who put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. He's reconciled them back to himself. Christ's death reveals to us the horrible effects of our sin and the greatness of God's covenant love to us in his willingness to send his son to suffer God's wrath for sin in our place. Therefore, the Lord's Supper reminds each one of us in the church that if not for Christ, we would all be dead in our sins. If not for Christ, and his willing sacrifice, we would all be condemned before a holy God. But out of his great love for us, he has acted. He has saved us through Christ. This is such good news, and it is good news that should bring believers together rather than separate them. What these verses are showing us then is that the Lord's Supper, when it is pra properly practiced, doesn't lead believers to be proud Rather, it must humble believers. For it, it reminds us of our helpless condition in our sin and, and our complete dependence upon God to save us. The Lord's Supper doesn't separate believers. Instead, it brings believers together. It reminds us that we are all one in Christ, that we are a family. And one of the healthiest things a family can do together is to eat a meal together. Almost every night at our house, we set our kitchen table. For every single person in our family, there is a spot for my wife and I and each of our four children. And then we set food on that table 
Last night, we had Papa Murphy's pizza that my wife brought home from Norfolk. It's kind of a treat. And one of the kids will fill up each cup with whatever each member likes to drink, milk for the boys and Betty, water for Esther and Greta, and some peach tea for myself. And when all has been prepared, we all sit down, we all call, call the kids down or call the kids up or from outside, wherever they are, we all sit down together around that table and we eat that meal together. And there may not be any other time of the day that we feel and act more like a family than when we are around the table eating supper together. And the Lord Jesus, in giving us the command as a church to gather around his table, the Lord's table, gather around that table together, and then for each of us to partake of the bread and each of us to also drink of the cup, he was teaching us that we are to think of ourselves as a family and thus act like we really are a family. Last night when I sat down to eat um, with my wife and children, I saw the hot pizzas just out of the oven and I was reminded right away, those aren't just for me. Those pizzas are for all of us. And it's much the same with the Lord's table. We are reminded, the bread isn't just for me. I'm not the only one whom Christ has died for on the cross. It was for all believers, all those who follow Christ. The, the bread and the cup are for all believers, for we are all in need of his grace. I'm not sure if there is a better way to show us that we are a family than to call us to come to the Lord's table together and to eat of the Lord's supper together regularly as a church. Let's think about that as we partake of the communion meal here later in our service. Secondly, the next paragraph, verses 23 through 26, Christ has given us the Lord's Supper to help us experience the reality of the gospel together. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now up until this point in the passage, Paul had been showing the Corinthians what was wrong. And now in verse 23, he begins to teach them the right way to practice the Lord's Supper. And he makes clear where, where he received these instructions from. It was from the Lord. From the Lord himself. And Paul takes us back to when the Lord first instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples on the night when he was betrayed. We can find this very scene that Paul is describing in, in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14 and Luke chapter 22. These are the Gospels which teach us the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus introduced this meal to his 12 apostles just hours before he was betrayed into the hands of the sinful men who schemed to put him on the cross. Jesus, in this meal, was teaching the apostles just what his death would mean for them and for all who believe. And he was looking ahead to the future. He was providing the church with this meal 
which would be a visible and tangible way for the church to remember and understand the gospel of our salvation. Now, let's notice the elements of it here. There is bread and there is a cup. The bread represents the body of Christ, which was nailed to the cross. That body, the body that Christ laid down to be crucified and which would bear the sins of all of God's people. In verse 24, some Greek manuscripts of 1 Corinthians also have the word broken in front of for you, which again points to the reality that the body of Christ was broken. It was crucified. It was broken into by the spear that pierced his side. It was beaten. It reveals the gravity of his sacrifice. He died for our sins. The cup represents the new covenant in my blood, it says. Throughout the Bible, God's relationship with his people is described and understood as a covenant relationship. That is, God made a commitment to his people, a commitment to bless them, to help them, to provide for them, and to be their protector. He was their king. He was their father. He was their husband through this covenant relationship. But the story of the Old Testament, Testament is another word for covenant, that story reveals how his people turned away from God and broke the covenant that he had made with them over and over again. They, for the most part, acted like they didn't want the special relationship with God because we are all, of course, ruled by our sin and our hard, rebellious hearts. But we see the grace of God in the Old Testament for he gave them a way to deal with their sin by the sacrificial system. They would bring their animals to the tabernacle or the temple and the animals would be killed as a sacrifice for their sins. The priests would symbolically place the guilt of their sins on the animals and then the animals, these sacrifices, would die instead of the people. But of course, these sacrifices could never be sufficient to deal with all of the sins of God's people. After all, they're just animals. And they had to, to, to continually, year after year, bring them for sacrifice, reminding these people each time of their guilt, of their sin, of where they stood before the holy God. But that was setting them up for the coming of the one who would be the one all-sufficient sacrifice for their sins, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would lay down his life and would shed his blood on behalf of the people. And he would usher in the new covenant spoken of by the prophets, particularly in Jeremiah 31. Jesus is saying here in verse 25 that the shedding of his blood was the means of establishing the new covenant with his people. This new covenant which provides for the forgiveness of sins for all who submit to Christ by faith and opens the way then for the sanctifying activity of the Holy Spirit, God himself working in the life of every believer. So, so when we take the bread and the cup, what we are essentially holding in our hands are the promises of God, the promise of this new covenant in physical Form The bread and the cup are embodied promises that we can see, that we can touch and feel. They are physical signs of the spiritual reality of what Christ accomplished for our salvation. 
That is why whenever the Lord's Supper is celebrated, the word of God must also be preached. For the word explains what these symbols mean, what they represent. The bread and the cup represent promises. They represent the gospel. And the gospel is news. It is is a message that must be declared and explained. Otherwise, these symbols, they're just bread bread and a cup. That's all they are. We are to eat and drink, as the text says, in remembrance of me. That is, remembering our Lord Jesus, he really died for us. The bread is real, reminding us that his actual body hung from the cross for us. A real body died. A real person died. The grape juice in the cup is real, reminding us that actual blood poured out for us from his body on the cross. Through that death, he saved us. Without that death, we would still be in our sins. We would still be under the just wrath of Almighty God. Now verse 26 here teaches us that we are to continue to observe this ordinance until he comes. Until he comes. We must not neglect it. Look at verse 26 again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim to one another He died for you. You belong to God now forever because he died for you. So come, come to the table. Let these promises nourish your weary souls. The Lord died for you. And no longer will he hold your sins against you. But he has removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. You are one of his people. Because you are here, you're, you're at the table. You've been given the bread, you've been given the cup, you belong, you are one of us. And he is our king, and he is our savior. So let us eat and drink and remember. That is what we are to be thinking through as we come to the table. Our last paragraph here, verse 27 through 32. Christ has given us the Lord's Supper as a regular prompt to examine our hearts for faith and for reconciliation within the body. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drink, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world." So after reading these words, the primary sense that we are left with is that partaking in the Lord's table is a serious thing. Like we often hear here at weddings, the Lord's Supper is something that should not be entered into lightly and unadvisedly, but reverently and soberly and in the fear of God. It's a serious thing. It's a serious thing to join with other believers and eat of the bread and drink of the cup for when we do that, you are making it clear, you are saying you belong to Christ. 
you're saying you are one of his people, that you are fully trusting in the Lord Jesus for your salvation. Because if you do that, and then live your life as if you have no fear of the Lord, as if Christ and, and his word mean nothing to you, it would be similar to a bride who makes her vows to love, honor, and cherish her groom till death do us part, but then after the wedding is over, she goes to bed with her ex-boyfriend. Paul warns the Corinthians that some of their number were being disciplined by God because they were not taking the Lord's Supper seriously. They were not loving one another in the church. They were divisive, looking down on others in their fellowship and being very cavalier with their sin. And so Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now this doesn't mean that all sickness or death are a result of our disobedience directly, but but, but it does say that the Lord has used these ways in order to humble his people, to discipline his people, to to, to wake them up, to, to see their sins, and to lead them to repentance. Therefore, we ought to examine ourselves then. But what are we to examine ourselves for? At the end of 2 Corinthians, that's the, the, the next letter in our Bibles that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Paul writes this in chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That is, are we truly living by faith in the gospel of, of, of Jesus Christ? Do we humbly recognize that the Son of God had to die for our sins? And are we trusting in his saving work and not our own for our salvation? Are we loving one another as Christ has loved us? Which is what Christians do. That's, that's, that's how we are to recognize people as a Christian is if they are loving their brother and sister in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that a life of perfect faith and repentance is required to take the bread and the cup. After all, the Lord's table makes clear we all needed Christ to die for us because we are sinners. I haven't found it put any better than this by the, the uh, great reformer John Calvin. This is what he wrote about what we are to look for, what we are to examine ourselves for in our life. He says, examine yourself whether you are serious in your intention to aspire to the righteousness of God. Are you serious in your intention to aspire to the righteousness of God? Is that going on in your life, in your heart? Or, he says, he goes on to say here, or, if humbled by the knowledge of your own wretchedness, now, John Calvin loved to use the word wretchedness, basically means your, your, your sinfulness, you fall back on the grace of Christ and rest upon it. In other words, when you are humbled by the knowledge of your sin, where do you go? What do you do with that? Well, if you fall back on the grace of Christ and rest upon his grace, his work for you, well, then you're a Christian. That's what Christians do. It says, if that describes your faith, then you can be assured that you are a guest worthy of approaching the table. If we didn't have a table, if we didn't have the table here, 
we wouldn't have that regular call to examine our hearts. The Lord's table then is a gift to regularly prompt us to examine our hearts and to keep us in the faith. But we also need to look at verse 29 here. Verse 29 says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there are two main interpretations for what this verse is saying about what we need to discern. Uh, Discern, of course, just means to, to perceive, to recognize, to recognize the body here. One interpretation is that the body here refers to the bread. For Paul just mentioned it in verse 27, referring to what the, what the bread and the cup signify in the Lord's Supper, he says the body and blood of the Lord. So to this understanding, we are to recognize what the Lord's Supper points us to, that is the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus for our salvation. That, that is, 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 is what it means. That's, that's what the Lord's table means. So we must recognize the seriousness then of our utter dependence upon his grace for our acceptance before God. The other main understanding is that the body here represents the church. For in chapter 12, just a few verses later, Paul will refer to the church, that is the gathering of believers, as the body of Christ. So what we are to discern then under that interpretation is that we all in the church belong to that one body. And therefore, if we have a conflict with one, with one another, with another believer, if we, have a, if we have sinned against another believer in the body, well then before we partake of the Lord's table, we need to go to that believer, go to that brother or sister, and as much as it depends upon us, to seek to reconcile with them in order for us to partake of the Lord's Supper together as one undivided body. So in that way, too, the Lord's Supper prompts us to be reconciled with one another. Now that might be difficult for us to do. I mean, we'd much rather not have to have those kinds of conversations or humble ourselves to seek forgiveness. But it is essential, it's essential to properly love one another and to live out the gospel before a watching world. And if we didn't have the Lord's table reminding ourselves of that need to do that, well, we could easily just forget about that and live, live our lives with these conflicts, with these crisis things going on between believers and we'd end up being a divided body. 